1: wherever you get your podcasts. Pan over a little bit with the camera right over here. Hundreds of people here. They've been gathering all morning long. There was only a small group at about 6 or 7 o'clock this morning, but as you can see, it's grown to a huge number of people right now at noon. Presley's body just arrived here at Graceland. A hearse carrying the singer's body left the Memphis funeral home, winding its way down Elvis Presley Boulevard to Graceland. The hearse quickly turned down a side street and pulled into Graceland by the back entrance. Elvis's coffin was taken from the hearse and placed in the mansion's music room. At three o'clock, the fans started filing in for their last view of Elvis. The coffin was opened. Elvis was dressed in a white suit, blue shirt, and blue tie. The end, at an early age, of one of the two most spectacular careers in the history of American entertainment, the other being Frank Sinatra. I learned very early in life, without a song, the day would never end. Without a song, a man he got a friend. Without, without a song, the road would never bend. Without a song. So I keep singing this song, Elvis' own family. Some members of the family arrived last night at the Memphis International Airport, including Priscilla Presley, who is Elvis's ex wife.
0: Some of them simply dropped everything to be here. Most were simple working-class people, spanning
1: all ages. Entire families came here, and they came from all parts of the country. And many traveled for long hours just to stand and wait. We left at 5.30 yesterday
0: afternoon from Indianapolis, and we got here at 5 to 9 this morning. And even though I can't get
1: in, this is the best I can do. I can be here. How long did
0: it take you to come down here? 12 hours. 12 hours, and it was
1: 731 miles.
0: I have two special guests from the Road to Now podcast, Ben Sawyer and Bob Crawford. And I've been on their podcast, so I thought it would be great to invite them on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics and talk to them a little bit. So guys, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you, Bruce. This is one of the greatest days of my life. Thank you.
1: We might be really big fans of <laughs> podcast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well i'm I'm glad to hear it this is a, a big anniversary that's happening this year it's getting some coverage maybe not as much as it should the 40th anniversary of elvis presley's death uh, august 16th 1977 and uh, so i thought we'd we talk a bit about elvis presley in america and culture and those days events and um and uh politics as well and the road to now program um but maybe we'll just start with a little bit tell, tell me a little bit about uh the road to now maybe bob we'll start with you and then go to ben well uh
2: bruce once again thank you for having us on we're both big fans of your show and and it's an honor to be here and we appreciate all the support you've given the road to now and your appearances uh have been some of the highlights I could speak for Ben and myself of us doing this podcast is getting to know you better, even though, Bruce, you and I went to college together and uh, we did run in some of the same circles. So, The Road to Now is a podcast that, that uh, Ben and I started uh, uh, going back a, a, about a year and a half ago. It basically asks these two questions one, how does the individual's personal narrative fit in with the larger historical narrative? And the other question it asks is, uh, how did we get to where we are today? And what threads that were, that, that were uh, pertinent and existing at the founding of this nation uh, can we trace to this day, to now?
1: It's great to, to be able to do these things because, as you know, I always quote Howard Zinn on this, if you, if, you, if you don't know history, it's like you're born yesterday, and if you're born yesterday, you'll fall off for anything. And so many of the debates, I think Bob and I keyed in on this together. You know, we have, we've had great discussions about history in the past well before we started this podcast. It's maddening if you see people trying to explain things outside of a historical context. You know, people will look back a year or two, maybe 10 years, but there are so many things that you really can't understand if you don't understand the backstory of it.
0: Your uh, program has done that in many interesting ways, like some of my favorite episodes with a history of wrestling. NASCAR, you know, the Harlem Globetrotters, guys get great people. Recently, you are done a cast on energy that I found really interesting, particularly those on the alternative energies and also on nuclear power, which I don't think for a lot of people they fully understand. And you had experts on who really gave a good view of the situation.
1: Yeah, it's one of those things you- where... I don't think you can listen to that series and listen to all four perspectives. We've had historians. We have experts in the field of nuclear energy. We've had you know people who are you know, journalists, and we bring all these different perspectives. There's no way you can listen to all of those and think that there's one solution to the energy problem.
0: For my listeners, if you haven't listened to their series on energy, go back to the road to now and, and take a listen. One of the neat things about it is it stopped me from doing more on energy uh, this year. Uh, but eventually I'm going to get to it. I have a whole podcast planned in the future on Carter, Jimmy Carter's energy plan <laughs> and looking at the passage of the bill and what it did and everything like that and the legacy of it, but I think I can hold off for, for a year now and just refer people to RTN.
2: Well, it's funny, Bruce, that you talked about uh, the Carter administration because that's kind of why we're here today, isn't it? to talk about that, the late 70s and, and what's, what happened that was uh, so pivotal in, in, uh, in American culture.
0: August 16th, 1977, Elvis Presley dies. Not just a mere entertainer in the way that we know entertainers today, somebody with a few songs, but just a critical figure in American music and culture. He was to go and perform that night a tragic story and immediately people start filling the streets of memphis around elvis presley boulevard you know say it isn't so and i know for my own family uh my mother joanne was a huge elvis fan uh to this day i still retain the elvis bust lamp that she had (laughs) she was a member of the Northern New Jersey Nights for Elvis and you know and we went on picnics uh, as a kid when I got the chance to go down to Graceland uh, as a college student um, back when I was at Stockton along with with Bob, I saw one of the one of the flowers uh, on his grave was from the Northern New Jersey Nights for Elvis, so I got the chance to. Obviously uh, Elvis was very big in the Carlson family and while I don't uh, unfortunately have a memory of the day, My sister talks about how distraught my mother was on it. And, of course, she talked about it a lot and retained the newspapers.
2: Our family was on vacation in Florida on that day. And I have this memory of my mother being very upset and crying. And I I asked her, when you asked us to come on the show and talk about this topic, I I called her and and I was like, what do you remember from that day? And and, did you get upset? Because I didn't want to say you cried the day Elvis died, but she told me she cried. She was very upset when Elvis died. And I think it's, and the more I thought about, you know, Ben and I coming on the show and thought about what what is Elvis's impact on American culture today? Because, Bruce, when you and I were young, I know Ben's a little younger than us, but before Elvis, the greatest pop culture, if you will, American figure was Charles Lindbergh. And Elvis was the first, he was the first pop superstar. And so for anyone who's under 40 and lived through Michael Jackson and everything and the pop culture Mm -hmm. explosion that followed the 80s, you know, I mean, Elvis was gone in the 80s and pop culture exploded, MTV, People Magazine, you know, this Entertainment Tonight, this whole culture of celebrity it wasn't what it as big as it as it became as it is today as it was when Elvis was present and with us and so how could someone who didn't live through Elvis's passing and have memories of the aftermath um, and it was a sensation wasn't it Bruce I mean I remember having Elvis coloring books at that point like everything on television was Elvis.
0: He was merchandising before Kiss and all those bands uh, took it up, and before the Star Wars phenomenon. I mean, there was there was Elvis, everything, and the concerts were huge.
2: And what about the uh, the tabloid aspect of his passing? Mm-hmm. The what did they his the whole thing with his doctor? What happened to his body after he died, and the rumors of of how he died and where he died, and this was all very sensationalistic and. Um, it's kind of that, that, kind of a celebrity, uh, it's almost become cliche, right? A celebrity dies of a drug overdose. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Now we, now we make the fuss that was made over Elvis with almost everyone. We do it maybe for a shorter time, but he was a iconic figure. And, um, some of that I think comes back to the, his origin on the scene of rock and roll music. And he was just a phenom uh and it's it's we're we're because we're talking about the event we're talking about the uh, the older Elvis and Elvis's death we also have to think about the younger Elvis and of course when uh they had the famous postage stamp competition and they, they had the decision between the did you want the older Elvis on the stamp or the younger Elvis the younger Elvis won I voted for the older Elvis, by the way, but uh, that was the memory that a lot of people had, and he came on the scene and kind of changed uh, pop culture.
1: Well, Bob just said, you know, anyone who did not live through that, you know, what would it be like? I can answer that question. Uh, I was—we're uh, coming up on the 39th anniversary of my birth on October 4th, which means I actually was born about 14 months after Elvis passed away. So I, I don't remember him as anything. And the generation gap, I think, can be told that whenever Bob said Elvis and tabloids, mm-hmm. all I thought about was all the tabloids when I was a kid that said Elvis were still, was still alive. <laughs> you know that, that, Isn't that, it
0: interesting that I think we're finally at the point where you don't hear as much of the Elvis is a still alive talk? But uh, that was big in the 80s.
1: Well, I, I can say this, though, Bruce, that one of my students mm-hmm. came to class about a year ago and asked me if I had read the story about how they discovered Elvis was alive, living in a small town in Tennessee, and he was homeless, and he was trying to wash people's windshields. And uh, I will say that was a teaching moment where I asked them to break down how evidence works uh, and whether or not they could use their tools of rationality to demonstrate whether or not that was true. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, (laughs) Can you falsify it? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: My father, this is kind of an interesting story, my father was going to Central Piedmont Community College in 1972, and his friend worked at the hotel right next to the old Charlotte Coliseum where Elvis had played. And Elvis stayed in the hotel his friend worked at. And this was 72, I think. And my dad got him to take him into Elvis's room right after Elvis had left before they cleaned up just to kind of see what was going on in there. And my dad said that even at that point, he walked in and they, the floor was just strewn with syringes, disposable syringes. Um, as I got on, I'll tell you, there's some great stuff about Elvis and the Soviet Union, which, uh, you know, that's Soviet history is my specialty. It's pretty fascinating how he became a worldwide superstar. And even they tried to keep him from, they they tried to keep Soviet citizens from getting access to Elvis Presley's music. And they, uh, they made sure they got it.
0: I have to point out that, that right there, my grandmother and the Soviet Union were working towards the same end because uh, she did not want my mother listening to elvis up until a point when elvis appeared on ed sullivan and ed sullivan said he's a decent boy he's thoroughly all right thoroughly all right i don't know if anybody i don't i wouldn't take that as a compliment anymore if someone said bruce you're thoroughly all right but (laughs) once ed sullivan said it then my mother was allowed to listen to some of music and then when he joined the army uh certainly he was acceptable
2: you know and 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 that appearance on ed sullivan it changed the course of music history, right? Mm -hmm. How many future rock stars from Bruce Springsteen on, uh, kind of pinpoint that moment. That was the moment they wanted to put a guitar in their own hands. And so Elvis literally changed the co- the course of music history. And, and he was the birth of rock and roll right. as we know it. Right. I mean, of course we could talk about the rhythm and blues of, of Memphis. And, but he was, he was a white man who sounded like a black man. And that was a commodity uh, that was unmatched at the time. And, and it, it, it changed, it changed music forever.
0: I think the culture, the, 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 the young Elvis, that phenome, that moved his legs, that, that shook things, had, had cultural, even political influences. Um, it made rock and roll popular, which brought it to conflict with authorities, which brought it to conflict with older people, um, set up how younger people felt and what they should be doing. Uh, it came at the same time as TV sets were increasing and, and all of those things. And um I think that if so many people were influenced by it you know there's the famous story of Springsteen on the born to Run tour, jumps over the gates of Graceland. I mean, this is while Elvis is still using it as a house. he didn't happen <laughs> to be there. <laughs> so Springsteen has to get escorted <laughs> out. I, I don't think they got arrested or anything, but you know they uh, so that's how powerful uh, an influence it was. Well and Springsteen's
2: him. song "Fire" was written for Elvis. Springsteen wrote it for Elvis to perform it the the pointer sisters I think recorded it, but it was written for Elvis.
0: you know, I did not know that a lot of people wrote for Elvis you know that's a that's a, one of the things you hear like oh he didn't he didn't write his own songs, but people love to write for him as a cultural icon uh, he's he's very important. the older Elvis is the image a lot of times in our mind, but when you look at some of those old like Milton Burl appearances and think about what it must have been like in the 50s to have this very young person, a millennial of his time, this kind of like very different guy with weird hair moving his legs in a, in a weird way. He wasn't political per se, but that in and of itself, I might argue is, is was just had a political effect in how people what how people acted and on the culture and on what people felt they could do. Hey, it's okay to go out and dance you know, because uh, the, the, this guy's doing it on TV.
1: When you said you wanted to talk about Elvis, I was like, I got to get ready for this. So I watched a bunch of interviews with Elvis, you know, went back and, and read up on his history and all of this. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's amazing about him is that he's a rebel for his time. But when you see him interviewed, he doesn't speak like mm-hmm. that. He actually is so respectful. He, when people ask him, you know, I saw some of the interviews mm-hmm. when he was in the in the army and they said, you know, Because apparently all the different branches of the Army tried to get him to come there. Air Force said that we'll send you around to recruit. The Navy offered something special, and he was like, no, I'm just going to go in as a GI. And they they asked him, do do the people here give you a hard time, do the other soldiers give you a hard time? And he said, well, I suspect they would if if they saw me getting special treatment, but I make sure that I don't. And he served like everyone else. They asked him, are you going to stop? uh, shaking your legs around. Can you stop doing that? And he, he wasn't like, no, I'm not going to do that. That's what I, am. he said, no, I can't do that. That's uh, that's just what I got to do. That's, that's, that's the way I am. And that's the way my music is. And it was never a flaunted in your face. It was always just that this is just what it is. You, if you, you know, it's, it's me. And I think that's amazing. He didn't, he didn't hype himself as a rebel is what I'm saying.
2: You know, it's funny. Uh, when I was in high school and, uh, like, freshman maybe 1986 listening to punk rock getting very into that culture um elvis is the El, the young rebel elvis was is was a very predominant figure in that culture and there was almost a um a uh a renaissance of that 50s the rockabilly the mm-hmm. r- rockabilly mm-hmm. elvis is what i'm trying to say Mike Ness. I mean, think about you know all the bands like that, and even uh, you, you know, but you think of the the, the Stray Cats and and uh, and that it was it was that rebel rockabilly, rebel Elvis. And when you would go to uh, we mm-hmm. would, there were some uh, punk rock stores, uh, in South Street in Philadelphia, we would go to, and this is again the early to mid '80s, and these you would have T-shirts of Sid Vicious and the Sex Pistols, um, uh, you'd have T-shirts of um. Of of the 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 Ramones or the or the the Dead Kennedys, but you would also have alongside them you had T-shirts of young Elvis, and so it's like this is like five ten years after his passing, but here you see the beginning of this uh, this commercial icon, if you will, or this there's something about young Elvis that embodies something in the American spirit, and uh, you see. Teenagers in the 80s beginning to wear shirts with Elvis on it.
0: One of the most requested documents from the National Archives is the photo of Elvis and Nixon. And the webpage where they feature it is still one of the most visited web pages of the National Archives, which is kind of a funny thing when you think about it because this is the agency that also has the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Elvis and Nixon, it is. There's a bit to the story of Elvis's visit with Nixon, and we get into it on the premium podcast for My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. So if if you're not signed up, it's as little as $2 a month. Sign up today, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. We've got a link to the premium podcast there. It can be as little as $2 a month. We're going to go over the story of Elvis's visit with Nixon, what he was looking for, And there's some documents from the Nixon administration side of things about that visit. So sign up now.
2: And, you know, I actually have an Elvis T-shirt story. Would you guys like to hear it?
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
2: Okay. I was um, probably a a sophomore in high school, and I uh, went to see a Journey concert. Do you guys remember the band Journey? (laughs)
1: oh absolutely
2: had a lot of hits in the 70s 80s um and it was the raised on radio tour i think so this is the end this is probably the last tour with steve perry and we get third row tickets and it was a just a big deal and it was three of us went and um i had a a t-shirt and it was elvis presley and his you know like rebel elvis but it was like kind of a Drawing almost like a cartoon, uh, and he was in the background was a rebel flag, so it's like his rebel flag background and Elvis's like you know young crooner face, maybe a piece of a leather jacket in there. Um, and I wore that concert, or I wore that shirt to the concert, and it was at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. Bruce, did you ever go to the Spectrum in Philadelphia for anything, any concerts?
0: Uh, I went there for a Bruce Springsteen concert. Okay,
2: so so we're at the show and I buy a journey t-shirt. Okay. And I want to I put my journey t-shirt on during the show or like before the show starts. And I'm holding my Elvis t-shirt and at the encore, the journey, the the journey, the, the band journey, they do, they do, I think either jailhouse rock or heartbreak hotel. I can't remember. Um, and I hold up, my Elvis t-shirt and Steve Perry points to me and he says, you know, give me your oh. shirt, give me your shirt. And I threw the shirt on stage and he put the shirt on. And so he, and I'm like 15 years old. Oh. And so he's wearing my Elvis t-shirt singing. I can't remember. I th- I feel like it was jailhouse rock. I wonder if I could go back and look at a set list online to find out, but he's wearing my shirt. It's on the big Jumbotron, and wow. uh, he's singing this Elvis song. It's just this amazing moment, this amazing moment. So the show ends. That was like probably the absolute last song they played. They walk off the stage, and I'm um, just dumbfounded that he didn't give me my shirt back. I couldn't believe That was my favorite shirt. I've <laughs> never seen that shirt or a shirt like it since. And I asked the security guard. And at this point, like now I'm in the music business. I've been in the music business for 16 years. I know how this goes, right? But I'm asking the security guard, you know, hey, man, can you get my shirt back? He has my shirt. The guy that was, who has your shirt, sir? The guy who was on stage singing the song has my shirt. I want my shirt back. Can you please get my shirt And it, it went from me being big Journey fan, like lights, Loving, touching, squeezing, wheeling the fire. You know, like, I'm just loving Journey. Like, to just automatically hating Journey. Before I left that concert, I denounced Journey. I denounced Steve Perry. <laughs> I almost do well, to this day. I still like that live album from the 70s. But, but uh, yeah, that's uh, my Elvis uh, uh, T-shirt story. And if I ever meet Steve Perry, which could happen, it could happen. It's not out of the realm of possibility. It won't be any niceties. It'll be right to the shirt. Hey, man, I want my shirt.
0: Well, look, I mean, I know I know this is a long shot, but I'm going to go for it on your behalf. Like, look, Steve Perry, if you're listening to this podcast, you need to get your shirt, the Elvis T-shirt, back to Bob Crawford, okay? Which is funny because
2: I, I forgot it until we were 20 minutes into the podcast.
0: <laughs> no, no, that's fine. I think what it speaks to, though, is how powerful uh, Elvis is, is just, uh, maybe not universally loved is a strong term because there's something like, oh, no, I don't. But far more uh, popular than than any artist at a time and just universally popular by so many different types of people. Uh Look, I mean, really a a big North and South artist, you know, and an international star. However, his death in 1977, the one thing that will always strike me about it, is how young. We're talking about a guy, you know, born in 35, so he's 42 years old when he dies all of that iconic status, all of that attention. And, yeah, there's celebrities and musicians that die at the 27 and things like that. They're usually people who have one good thing, you know, but for someone like that, an icon um, passing at, at such a young age, and I remember being uh, younger and telling my mom, because I was young, so the 40s seemed like a an old age to me. It certainly does now. Uh you know, oh, he was so old, and my mother was like, no, he was young, (laughs) and it's true, and so just a tragic uh, passing, and I think that speaks to, you know, some issues that we have today, because certainly Elvis had an addiction problem. I do remember that at the time, there was a much bigger separation between prescription drugs and abuse of illegal drugs, and this was something that my mother uh, as a big elvis fan drew a distinction on it's it's probably a distinction we wouldn't make much today certainly the doctor was uh, his license taken away was i believe they attempted to prosecute him and uh shelby county but i think we were be we were denied an example that might have been useful to people in later years because of his iconic status and you didn't want to talk about that with elvis
2: Yes, Elvis's doctor was George N- Nikopoulos. Does that sound right?
0: That's right. It was Doctor Nikki. Is the way yeah, I was and always. He,
2: didn't he um go. He denied that he had any, had a, that he had anything to do with Elvis's death. And then didn't he go on tour with his medical bag and some of the drug, maybe some of the drugs or the the jewelry that Elvis had given him over the years. And he kind of had this little sideshow.
0: I don't recall the the specifics, but it sounds right. I mean the the uh, the the tabloid around Elvis, but certainly it was, um, I think, like the recent book title says, you know, A Careless Love. It was, there was really no one who could stop him. He was actually a master of the pharmacopoeia, and he knew a lot about prescription drugs, and Dr. Nick was more of a, a vehicle to get the, the drugs. i just want to jump in with a clarification about elvis and his doctor based on what bob and i were talking about there it's an interesting story does relate a bit to drug policy dr george Nicopoulos died in 2016 and took with him of course a legacy of some people seeing him as a killer he was indeed prosecuted in 1983 years after presley's death now the difficulty in prosecuting him was for two reasons one is the cause of Presley's death was not so certain. Early news reports said that he just merely had a heart attack. And it was only later that some blood specimens were tested to determine he had died of... Also, uh, drug abuse was a contributing factor. But because there was such difference of opinion about the the death, you know, that was one reason. The other reason that Dr. Nick was let off. He was a well-regarded and well-known doctor and uh, had many friends in the medical community and many patient friends. Later, it's actually in 1995, 20 years after Elvis' death, Dr. Nikopoulos' license is taken away. For similar reasons, the medical board found that he was prescribing too much to patients. He felt, of course, strongly that it was still a reaction to his role in Elvis' death. Dr. Nick started treating Elvis in 1967. And, you know, there's two sides to it. On the one hand, he wrote Elvis prescription for 10,000 doses over the time he was treating him of uppers, downers, and associated narcotics. In 1967, he started treating Elvis Presley because of his insomnia. To hear Dr. Nick's side of the story was that informed Presley several times that he was taking too many pills, uh, the combination of upper and downers could be bad for his health, and he found that press would get frustrated and go to other doctors if he didn't get what he wanted. And sometimes he did indeed not prescribe to Elvis. Elvis's problem, Dr. Nick said, was that he didn't see the wrong in it. He felt that by getting them from a doctor, he wasn't the common everyday junkie. On the road, he was so afraid that he wouldn't get enough sleep to do a good show the next night that he would end up asking you for an extra pill or two. And indeed, sometimes, Dr. Neck would give him placebos. When Elvis asked for a shot that he didn't need, Dr. Neck would wait till his back was turned, squirt the liquid on the floor, and then inject his patient with an emptied syringe. Tablets were trickier, but he persuaded Noel, the manufacturers of one of Elvis' favorite painkillers, to press a special batch of a thousand pills without any active ingredients. It's hard to convince somebody what's right and wrong or what they need to do. It's hard when you've got somebody who thinks they have all the answers and no matter what you throw at them, they've got answers for you. Elvis was a very smart guy, Dr. Nick said. Not to have any college education, he was well-read. He carried more books on the road than we carried drugs. I mean, suitcases, three big steamer trunks full of books. Yet, he was always childlike with these things about taking drugs. I don't, I don't think he ever realized how harmful these things could be to him. If he got a sore throat and I gave him a penicillin tablet, I gave him 20 to take saying, you take four a day of these things until you use them up. So he's going to take eight or 12 a day until he uses them up because he thinks he'll get well faster that way. It was certainly a stupid decision on his part, but he wasn't a stupid man. He was really a
3: smart guy. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow simultaneously freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if Instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world. If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary carabell and Emma Vavalucus dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country it's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. But I do recall that distinction being made in the past of a, this difference. But, oh, it's okay, it was prescription drugs, which now we know the problem with that when that's unleashed uh, and the recent problems we've been having.
1: Now that that I mean if we could have learned that lesson at that point in life, we would have spared ourselves a lot of trouble. I think it is a shame sometimes whenever we shield ourselves um one of the things that I think is interesting is like looking at the I was listening to interviews with folks who toured with Elvis, and what was amazing was that you know, the role uh, Colonel Tom Parker played in all of this because he would you know this i guess he was a notorious gambler he would he would lose a half a million dollars in a night and basically he he took fifty percent of what Elvis made and I remember one of the guy one of the folks who toured with him was in an interview was saying, We all hope we knew that T- Colonel Tom Parker had some influence over Elvis. And we all hoped that he you know, we all figured he hadn't seen the side of Elvis, the, the trouble he was having with the with the drugs and everything. He said in one night Elvis was in a room just, just ruined from all the drugs. And he, he said he thought, Well this this is good, he'll see it. And he said Tom Parker went in the room and a few minutes later he walked in the, the guy who who was with him walked inside and said that Tom Parker was there like holding his hair or something like this like helping him get through the 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 detox and he looked at the other guy and said the only thing that matters is that Elvis plays the show tonight. Mhm. And you think about it if it was friends like those uh, how tragic it is that that basically this guy was addicted to gambling so he was addicted to the, the 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 money that Elvis brought in.
0: It was a complex relationship with uh Tom Parker and I think it's probably something that a lot of musicians go through but it was uh, you know, one thing one thing that's interesting about the Tom Parker story is even after his death, Vernon and the estate make the same deal with Tom Parker, fifty percent. So it was an extremely enormous manager's fee. But then again, here was this fellow from, you know, t- Tennessee, who was playing some dairy fairs, and you know, Tom Parker exposed him to new heights of dollars. But yes, took the took a higher percentage of those dollars, and that was always the argument it's not an argument that would hold up much at at this time he also did things like um one of the reasons that so many of those movies were done during the 60s and while some a few of them are good i love king creole but uh some of them are really you know should not have been made um Colonel Parker not only got a cut of those but also got a fee as a technical director, so like uh maybe thirty thousand for some of them on each movie made in addition to getting his usual manager's fee so he he led Elvis to some bad places career wise Elvis was denied a concert at the White House because uh Tom Parker wanted a fee, and the White House was not going to pay <laughs> so uh Wow. The, there's there's factors like that i think and the one one of the greatest musical moments uh for elvis was when he broke away for one concert and that was the comeback concert in 60 uh 68 december 68 and what had happened is he had been walking the streets of sunset boulevard and he walked all the way down the street and he had made so many movies And he had been on the screen, but there were so many new musicians coming in the 60s. The Beatles had come and everybody else. And he walked down the street in Sunset Strip, and nobody said a word to him. And after that, he said, I've got to do something. And he got a different producer. Tom Parker reluctantly agreed to it. And he did the comeback special, which features some of the best songs that he's ever done. I mean, the highlight being...
1: There's no doubt. Yeah, that is.
0: If I can dream, and is is such a fantastic moment. He's there in the white suit.
1: Yeah, interesting side note. Uh, Colonel Tom Parker's house is about just a couple miles from mine here in Nashville, up at uh, in East Nashville slash Madison area, wow. and it just went up for sale. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's funny if you meet the old timers around here, they'll tell you about how they remember Elvis driving up Gallatin Avenue up to Tom Parker's house in his convertible when they were kids.
0: I want to talk a bit about, uh, because it's My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, I think the one political issue that you can really uh, put Elvis into is this whole the whole debate over the shut up and sing debate. Should musicians not get into politics or get into politics? And one of the things about Elvis that I think keeps coming up is he had a press conference, he's asked about the Vietnam War, and he says, madam I'm just an entertainer, I would rather not get into that. And that quote has been replayed and replayed and sometimes used in debates as a pro kind of shut up and saying musicians shouldn't be been involved. See, Elvis said that. But, you know, I mean, a couple things. First of all, he was generally a polite guy, as we mentioned. He also, the question was about the Vietnam War, not just about politics in general. And the rest of that quote is that he said that when he was asked, should other entertainers do that, he said, no. And... Elvis was probably more involved in politics than that statement would probably indicate. Um, Just the very fact of the type of music he played, that he was using African-American music, that he was shaking his legs on on TV and acting in a different way from other musicians or jazz musicians might have done at that time. And sometimes a little on the conservative side. He was, uh, you know, at least in the later years, he was a... He was meeting with Nixon. He was kind of anti hippie. He didn't like the overboard extreme stuff. So there's all kinds of ways that he's involved in politics. But there is that that quote of you know for the shut up and sing debate. I wonder, uh, particularly for you, Bob, since you are a musician, how you feel about that debate.
2: You know, Bruce, I go back and forth over this hmm. because I I think that the the jeopardy some entertainers put themselves in is speaking on things that they just don't know a whole lot about and or they're not super well informed about certain issues and they speak out on it and or the way they speak out, it becomes more about them than it is about the issue itself. I think we saw that with Madonna at the woman's March. Um, right. I, I think you, you kind of see it in a way with Kathy Griffin, what she did recently, uh, I think that it just becomes it's it's more about the entertainer now. Then then you have Bono, who I spoke with someone who was a part of the Bush administration, and when Bono was going to Africa and working with George W. Bush uh, uh, on on HIV issues and, and African issues, he was he would be sitting down in a room with African African leaders, and he'd be the most well informed man in that room about these issues. I mean, even more so than the African leaders themselves. So you have you have people like Bono who are the complete real deal, and then you have people who are just kind of jumping on the bandwagon, or maybe they're moved, but they're not informed. And so it's a tough it's a tough road to walk. You know, I know our band we kind of it's been tough for us because there are things that we've wanted to maybe get involved in, and and we we held back because we things should kind of play out and and I think the person who should be the people directly affected by the issue they should be the ones in the front row or the ones on the podium making the speech you know I I think uh the celebrity uh they can do other things to help they can fund they can give money they can lift lift up and and provide these groups that they have compassion for with support but they don't need to be the face of it. Now, I've personally done a lot of work with St. Jude. Plus, um, my daughter had a brain tumor, and she is a St. Jude patient. And so I know that I've walked that road. I've completely walked that road, the good and the bad of it. I know it. I know it inside out. And then there's the CBD oils, which I support, the uh, the legalization of medical marijuana, because I do know who children who have been who have had their lives changed because of it. So those are issues I feel very comfortable speaking out on. Other issues, not so much. And I think it comes down to how well-informed is the person. Um, Sometimes I feel like the entertainer, uh, if they want to get in politics, and for all of us, we all have an opinion, Twitter. I mean, go on Twitter or Facebook. Everyone's got their political opinions. Well, maybe we should be running for office maybe we should be on the school board. We should be in the county commission. We should be uh, running as a state representative, state senator, you know,
0: more local issue,
2: local issues or, or national. I mean, throw Mm. your hat in the ring. You know I mean? That's the kind of thing is, is we all have an opinion. And, and uh, I think our founders meant for, I don't think they meant for the career politician. I think they meant was for two years or six years uh, uh, men and women well at the time men but 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 men and women would step up and say I will carry the burden of my community for this for I will do my time and then it's someone it's like you know it's like civil service and it's uh, it's like doing jury jury duty right we all say okay I'm gonna it's my turn it's my turn to carry carry the weight for my community and and so
0: yeah, that sounds like, and, a, and that's good what advice. Ben and
2: I try to do on our show. We try to we we do have opinions, uh, but we we always try to leave room for the things that that we might be ignorant of, and uh, and always listen to someone who who may make a good point, even though we disagree. But maybe their good point will allow us to further reflect. So I, I just don't think it's cut and dry.
1: And can I add something to that too, as as the third party person? Who, uh, who has a podcast with a guy who is a musician. I, I only hear people complaining about people in, in entertainment. Bob, Bob's absolutely right. You've got to be informed uh, about it. And I like, I like Bob's uh, idea, concept of like being moved versus being, uh, you know, being educated. But I'll just say this. As someone who works with Bob, uh, I think we would be impoverished if we decided that Bob didn't get to have a voice because, uh, because he is also a talented musician. I mean, in a way, it's penalizing someone for having multiple talents. Uh, I think that you, if a person is informed, that's the measure. It doesn't matter what they do otherwise. Uh, you know, As someone who oftentimes I'll start making a point and somebody goes, go, ah, of course you think that, you're a college professor. You, you know what I'm saying? I only have to hear one person do that at a time, not thousands, because I don't have that type of audience. But it's unfair. You judge a person by their ideas.
0: If we're truly a democracy, everyone gets speech and I think uh, Bob makes a good point. It's like, speak, but speak what you're informed about. Whenever I hear shut up and sing, I just think about Bob Dylan. And I'm like, is someone going to say that to him? You know, just play music, little man. Just just play notes and entertain us. It's like, no, there's there's a message behind <laughs> these things. I mean, when most works of art and uh, if if the issue's right and you're informed on it, Elvis's statement, uh, ma'am, I, I'm not going to speak about the Vietnam War, you know, but... Uh, he did go and visit uh, Richard Nixon,
1: though. <laughs> yeah, and let's not forget that uh, who, the first national celebrities in the United States, if we we're to talk about what celebrity means, the first national celebrity is Benjamin Franklin. Uh, the second person, the, the, the other one during Franklin's day was him and George Washington. So to be fair, if you want to make n- people knowing who you are uh, a, you know, a qualification for not being listened to, you've got pretty bad historical precedent to that.
2: Hey, and you, you can't forget George Whitefield. The, uh, the evangelist of the 1730s, the 1750s of the First Great Awakening. He was, before George Washington, the most well-known man in North America.
0: Well, I think the clergy in early American history, I mean it's worthy of all podcasts itself, the clergy in American history were the Elvises. I mean, they were the pop stars. You would go to a church to hear this great new uh, preacher or minister. Uh, you would want to read their books. I mean, Cotton Mather and, and all of his, his history of... Uh, when, when John Witherspoon joined the independence movement, or even when he just went to Princeton, that was a huge boon for that uh, school, for the, for the revolutionary cause, certainly. Uh.
2: Bruce, it was Benjamin Franklin and Ben. Benjamin Franklin estimated George Whitfield spoke in front of 20. He went to one of his speeches. He estimated he spoke in front of 20,000 people. Wow. 20,000 people without a microphone.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> for that Think
2: about
0: time. that. I think that was the one where Ben Franklin said that he couldn't he couldn't stop himself from giving money, so he just brought less money <laughs> to his uh, sermons because of the <laughs> and, and, and Ben
2: Franklin was a skeptic, and Ben Franklin was a skeptic, and he That's was right. moved by by Whit, Whitefield. Whitfield Whitefield, somebody help me out
0: here. <laughs> yeah, these were these were people of fame and the um, and and would have been viewed as uh, celebrities and key spokesperson in their I, time.
2: I think it's Whitfield, by the way.
0: I think that's right. Yeah, pronunciation's always fun with the podcast. You know, what did we? Ben, do you want to talk about the Soviet Union and Elvis? I'd and- love
1: to. I'd love to because I was—I I read up on this. I was just going through a newspaper articles, and one of the fascinating things is there was this. Uh, you know, Elvis was huge. People knew him there, uh, and there's a myth that you know they couldn't get it, but they could. Uh, and there were various ways. My, my favorite story came from my advisor at Appalachian State, who was born in the Soviet Union in the 1950s. Uh, grew up in Vladikovka in the Caucasus Mountains in the 1970s. He was there, and he would go up into the hills where they could get above the squelching, I guess. The Soviet Union sent out, and they would record the voice of America rock and roll music, and bring it back down. They had tape players. Uh, but the the most the most amazing way is it was called uh which means rock on bones. And what people figured out in the Soviet Union was that uh, x-ray paper could be used to copy uh, record albums. And after World War II, there was tons of used uh, x-ray paper. So someone would smuggle in, someone would get probably from St. Petersburg or the Baltic Republics up there closer to Western culture. They'd get a record and they'd record it. They'd cut it out in a circle and they'd record it. And they'd go through all, all through the Soviet Union and you knew where you were. In the order by how good it was because every recording lost quality but I was looking uh, I was looking up information about Elvis and these because you, know, you can get a lot of things and uh, sure enough on the u.s. Uh, Diplomacy Center website they have as one of their uh, the photographs posted there a, an album a uh, 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 rock on bones of uh, got a lot of living to do that was obtained by a diplomat who served in Moscow from 1958 to 1960 and he got it off so they were getting that music uh, and then one of the, the great stories is in 1989, the first Elvis Presley album was pressed in the USSR. You know, the Glasnost is, is a time of opening. And it was uh, it was the, the album was That's All Right, uh, which was translated as Silva por jockey which means, which is what somebody asks. is like, everything cool? Everything fine? Shieldsparayaki means is everything in order? That's kind of like a thing you ask. It, is everything in order mama? No, that's not the yeah, subject. Exactly. <laughs> well, well, they did include mama, so I guess they, they, they left that one off. But then I read, U- UPI reported in 1990 that Graceland had been contacted by a group in the Soviet Union, and this is uh, in the middle of 1990, uh, that was forming called the All Union Association of Rock and Roll Fans in Moscow that was forming an official rock and roll club. They wanted it to be based on uh, they're the biggest fans of Elvis Presley, and they were they wanted help in setting up a restaurant in Moscow called Memphis that was going to be an Elvis Presley theme. I didn't find out if they ever did it. It wasn't there when I was there, uh, you know, 20 years later. Uh, but I, I think that's a fascinating story, and it speaks to it. As soon as, as soon as culture opens up, what's the first thing that people are, one of the first things people are working on getting? Elvis, celebrating Elvis. It may well be that Elvis won the Cold War.
0: Why don't we go around and say what our favorite Elvis song or album is? For me, it was the last one, Moody Blue. It was just polished sound. He was doing things, interesting things with his voice.
2: Well, I always liked Elvis Presley's version of the song, Don't. Oh, yeah. yeah you remember don't.
0: that? I don't want to get yeah. in copyright trouble.
2: I had a. Oh, please, Bruce, come on, sing.
1: <laughs> don't. <laughs> you sang on our podcast. <laughs> don't. You I, I had
2: a uh, okay. Elvis, uh, rock, it was a cassette tape, Elvis, like Rockabilly Elvis, and then uh, Little Sister was on there, and um, Don't, and I just remember those songs very well.
1: Well, I got to say that two, two songs that I love. <clears throat> one is Suspicious Minds.
0: Real good one. His last number one hit on the pop charts.
1: That was great. And then also I've got a bit of a a bit of an attachment to the song in the ghetto. Yes. Uh, just because in my high school Bible class we were learning about uh cities in Israel and the Middle East and we learned about Meghetto. Uh and so for the rest of the semester we just kept on making up lines about about the Bible lesson about Meghetto, and just going, mm-hmm. In Meghetto.
0: Well that was a song that uh, really plays into the the slightly political Elvis that he did choose to sing that song and enjoyed playing that song. He's a little reluctant at the beginning because it had a message, but uh, that shows you that he wasn't always uh, immune to to some political message that he wanted to highlight troubles in inner cities, and that was part of that comeback special when he did break away a little bit from the Colonel, and uh, it shows you where his his head was at. And...
2: Didn't he have a medley at one point at the end, uh, towards the end of his career? That was the Battle of Him. Oh yes.
0: Over- That was 70s. It was the mixture of uh, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, Dixie, and uh, I don't know the song, but it's, you know, uh, um, uh, Don't you cry, you know your daddy is bound to die. You know, something like that. But it was this mix of these quite powerful yeah. If it wasn't for that copyright, I'd have it running under underneath us. But uh, go YouTube it now after you listen to this.
2: Got get clearance that doesn't cost us an arm
0: and a leg? This 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 Bruce. podcasting, uh, you know this, you know they're just robbing us. We're like the 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 miners of uh, the '49, you know. Where where we get a little gold, but they're taking all the money on the <laughs> shovels. Uh, uh. <laughs> well, guys, really. Thanks so much. This I've been looking forward to this day. This is going to be a great episode. For my listeners, you're listening to Bob Crawford and Dr. Ben Sawyer of The Road to Now podcast. Now, what's the best uh, website or how they can get that, I mean, besides just kind of searching on iTunes?
2: Well, you can visit com, and that holds all of our shows and our, uh, our blogs and uh,
1: maybe some photos and You can find us on social media, Twitter and Instagram. We are road underscore two underscore now. And just because uh, I always say this on our podcast when we're running through all this information, uh, it's really important that those listening go to iTunes and rate the podcast they love. So if you love this podcast right now, you need to go to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. On iTunes or Apple Podcasts, and give them a five star rating because it helps Absolutely,
0: yeah. Word word of mouth is what helps spread these podcasts. That's why I have you guys on. I really enjoy listening to your podcast, guys, and uh, it it helps me a lot. Part of that Jack Matlock interview is going to end up in my final episode on the uh, on the Cold War and Reagan. So that's that's coming. Oh, that'd
1: be great. Oh. We're that's we're honored, Bruce. Great, thank you. Yeah, you know, you know what's crazy? I saw Chomsky quote Matlock the other yeah. day. Yeah. Well, there you go. Wow. Noam Chomsky. I was like, the world's going to end now. Noam Chomsky's <laughs> quoting Reagan's ambassador to the Soviet Union.
0: And uh,
2: b- breaking news, U.S. intelligence, North t- North Korea miniaturizes nuclear weapon ahead of most estimates. Oh, great. So, yes, Bruce, Oh boy. Ben. <laughs> and Bruce, the world is going to end. Very well, sweet. I'm
0: glad I had you guys on before the world's end. That was my goal. <laughs> so, guys, thanks for coming on the podcast. <laughs>
2: Thank you, Bruce.